Hello, everybody. This is thanks for joining us. This is the TSSI refuting Marxist inconsistency, perhaps show. Okay, so who do we have here on the show here today with us? We have got Lexi. Hey, what's up, Lexi from Swampside Emancipation? How you doing? We've got uh, Amog. Hi, it's Amog from Symptomatic Redness. And we got Emmanuel and Aiden. Hi, this is Emmanuel from the podcast uh, N Talk in Swedish for a lost cause. And Aiden, I'm a student kind of of Emmanuel's. Uh, yeah, reading it from the beginning. And that sounds like we're a sect. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit worried about that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't believe it. Very... Good. A, a very, no a very small sect. <laughs> a very small sect. And I think we also have Alex. Alex, can you hear me? Or um, I think I can. I think I can. Tom, hello. Can you hear me? We can indeed. Alex is a listener of the of my show, and uh, he expressed an interest in joining as well. Okay, so can we all default uh, to our our um, our mute buttons just? Uh, in general. So what can people see? People can see. Okay, so we're starting off here. We're going to be reading Andrew Kleiman's uh, um, Reclaiming Marx's Capital, a refutation of the myth of inconsistency. And we're going to be going chapter and verse all the way through, hopefully, over a number of shows like this uh, to try and tease out the arguments about whether Marx's economics is inconsistent uh, or not. And if uh, the the uh, TSSI, which is uh, short for the Temporal Single System Interpretation, is a is a well one is it close to what Marx said? Is it what Marx meant? And and B does it actually make sense? So that's what we're trying to get through and trying to figure out, and also talk about where we can the other schools and what they say about things and try and come up with what four or five of us extremely intelligent people think uh, think about it. Um, so uh, will does anybody, have any, anybody else have anything to say before we start? Not really, uh, other than um, I've been chipping away at this debate for about five or six years <laughs> and six years ago is probably when I read uh, Reclaiming Marxist Capital, which was one of the books that made me think, hey, being a Marxist doesn't seem totally crazy. So glad to be doing this. Yeah, so I'm I'm similar. I read it a few years ago. Uh, I agreed with the book, not that I was an expert in any of this stuff, and I reread it in preparation for this show and I must say it convinced me a second time, probably even more so. But I haven't read that that much, uh, next to none of the alternatives. So perhaps I'm just naive and falling for for it. Um, so who wants to tell us about the story about the line, the statue? Lexi. I will start. So let's get to the line and the statue. Um, this is a nice mythical preface here, or, or is this in the first, this is in the first chapter, it's not in the preface. Okay, um, the lion and the statue, uh, I'll just read the first paragraph. One of Aesop's fables, the lion and the statue, is the story of an argument between a man and a lion over which species is stronger. 
Eventually, the man takes the lion to the public gardens and points to a statue of Hercules strangling a lion. This proves, the man exclaims, that humans are the stronger species. No, the lion replies. It proves nothing, since a man made the statue. If lions could make statues, Hercules would be lying under the uh, would be lying under the lion's paw. And so, this is a metaphor for um, what he'll later term the Whiggish sort of interpretation of economic theory, where as time has gone on, we've weeded out all the bad ideas, uh, and now we just have you know this good pure science. And the thing that Kleinman is most interested in is how this narrative is repeated within Marxism itself, that Marxist economists seem to believe that Marx's theory is part of the errors of history that need to be avoided. And yet they somehow still represent themselves as Marxists. And that's like the <clears throat> academic quandary Kleinman is pointing to here. Yeah. So this is like, we, we see it, you know, I've said this before in different podcasts. I say it all the time because I'm, I'm quite a dullard, but like, you know, there is a, you know, if you want to get a job as a Marxist professor, you kind of have to come up with a new theory and, and, and show why Marx was wrong in the first place. And I think a lot of the stuff that Kleiman is fighting against is, is some of that. And also some attacks that have been leveled by uh, bourgeois economists over the years and all the impacts that they've had on uh, essentially, you know, people taking Marxist economics seriously. Um, Man Emmanuel, do you want to go on about the next bit, maybe about what this book isn't and is about? You were talking about it beforehand. Yeah, so um, this was actually, this, so uh, just like you, Tom, this is my, my second time around. Uh, this book, uh, for me, just as it was for Lexi, was kind of the first uh, entree into thinking that, hey, Marxists don't need to be these... Uh, uh, academic wizards or whatever with uh, impenetrable jargon, but it can actually make sense. And um, since then, I've come to believe that you know um, Marx was actually consistent, and and Marxist economics actually works. But what I find fascinating about um, Kleiman's sort of mission here uh, in this book is that he explicitly states that you know I'm not going to try to prove that. Um, Marxist economics is good or is valid or is true. Um, in fact, he he states also that he's going to try to disprove some um, some evidence, supposed evidence for uh, for Marxist theory, because he, just to convince sort of the reader that he's not out to make everyone a Marxist. Um, what he is about is to try to make um, uh, to, to refute the claim that Marx, Marx's own theory, so not Marxism in general, not some sort of uh, strange, uh, uh, strange Marxist school, but Marx's own theory, uh, the claim that Marx's own theory, the one that he wrote in Capitals, Capital Volume 1 and, and, and 2 uh, and 3, the claim that that is inconsistent is what he, what he is out to, to dispel and, and disprove. And he hopes that by convincing people that Marx's own theory on its own merits is consistent and logically valid, if that can be shown, then we can have a discussion 
about whether or not it's actually applicable to reality. But his claim is sort of we, ha- we need to start with being, having a theory that makes sense. Yeah, and, and I skipped over the most important part of uh, 1.1, the line in the statue, just and to build off of that point, that the main thesis of the book is that these, you know, um, these human building statues, these uh, Marxists building their own narrative, um, have, have so-called proved that Marx is internally inconsistent. Lo- logically inconsistent, mathematically inconsistent. That is, doesn't even look good on paper. Isn't even wrong. Not even a not even a theory, right? That's what he's seeking to. That's the myth he's seeking to overturn. Um, and the specific points that he gets into are these concepts of um, simultaneous and dual systems versus temporal single systems. Um, should we spend a moment talking about what that means just so that when it comes up later, it will. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, so the, the general idea is that some people think, well, Marx, Marx's value theory. Well, maybe we, what we'll do is we'll, we'll go through what Marx means by his value theory before we get into that first. Okay. You know, the, yeah. Chapter first part of chapter two. So we'll exactly want to talk about like what, uh, the what internal inconsistency means i know when i read it first like you know i i i had a, I have a degree in pure mathematics and when i was reading it i you know it kind of i didn't really i was kind of questioning the the what would, how would i put it i was questioning the kind of importance of consistency in my own head you know uh, thinking like well if the results are look like reality do we really care if on on the edges there is some minor inconsistency? Do, do people want to talk about why they think it's so important? Yeah, so I think one way to think about it. So I have a view about what the internal inconsistency is. I don't think there's. I think there's. No, I don't think there's a sort of single issue that Kleinman is talking about. So there's a sort of central mistake that he thinks people are making, which is the thing that Lexi just referred to: the simultaneous dual system versus temporal single system um, stuff. Uh, And that mistake leads to kind of a number of different mistakes, one of which is the sort of, you know, the famous results in the history of Marxist theory, you know, Akishio's theorem, um, the sort of stuff around the tendency of racial profit to fall, um, stuff around, you know, Bortkiewicz. And in each of these, there are similarities between all of these, but they're not all of the same problem. Um, or rather, it's it's not obvious to me that that that, that it's just a, sing, a single issue repeating itself. Um, um, but 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 Kleinman's, that's not Kleinman's view. Kleinman's view is that uh, all of these different issues, which can be expressed mathematically in different ways, come from this basic conceptual mistake of seeing you know value and price as determined independently, um, and uh, deter- and and inputs and outputs being valued simultaneously. Right, so that's the sort of the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that I don't know how much emphasis we want to put on this notion of logical inconsistency. Um, um, you know, so the claim is certainly not that the theory is gibberish in the, like the Wittgensteinian analytic philosophies, <laughs> right? I don't, I don't think I don't think people are claiming that. <laughs> right. You know, you know, <laughs> you know uh, Marx is trying to utter uh, claims that language cannot express or things of this kind. Right. I take it the claim is that um, 
Um, I mean, I shouldn't say the claim right before I've tried to suggest that there isn't a single claim. Um, but the claims are something like, um, you know, uh, there, are, there are central kind of empirical claims the theory makes about, um, I mean, not just empirical, there are certain kind, there, there are central kind right. of modeling claims the theory makes, which uh, don't turn out to be true, for, you know, given assumptions that, uh, modeling assumptions that we should expect um, the theory to the theory to have. So, for instance, this could right. be anything from you know uh, the rate of the hey Mark said the rate of profit would fall if you if you think if you model you know value production this way. Guess what, kiddo? Given your assumptions, it doesn't fall, right? So that's so that's sort of going to be like one kind of claim of inconsistency. Another kind right. of claim of inconsistency is going to be like. Um, you know, prices converge to values. Guess what, dude? That doesn't happen. You said it. You said it would happen, but it doesn't happen, right? Things, things of this kind, right? Um, right, right. So yeah. the, okay. what Come I'm getting in. at is is logical validity, not logical consistency. Like supposedly, Marx's conclusions do not follow from his premises. Yeah, yeah. So this idea that you know, like, what is it? Socrates is a man, and Socrates is Greek. Therefore, he's a philosopher. You know, it. You know, Socrates was a philosopher, but the logic doesn't follow. Right. I, I don't want to. I think we should. We should kind of uh, stay away so much right now, Mog, if you don't mind, just from the actual ins and outs of all of the arguments, and let's try and develop them yeah. as we come. Yeah. Because Absolutely. I'm afraid that people will <laughs> be lost already before we actually discuss what it actually is we're talking about yet. All I, I wanted to say, Tom, was that it's 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 important to just. The reason I bring out the arguments is just to see that these are not, so to speak, airy-fairy philosophical arguments about whether Marx is making sense or not. Absolutely. Right? That's they're, all I wanted to say. Yeah. Like, they're kind of core, simple. It's a simple argument. He's either consistent or he's not consistent. And we'll try our best to figure out whether we think he's consistent or not reading this book. Is that a, is that a reasonable way to sum it up? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's mm -hmm. I mean... And also, just a little note on logical. Just let's not let's not put too much stress on that. I think a lot of these a lot of these concerns are just concerns about are partly concerns about whether the economy behaves in a certain way. They're not simply logical concerns. That's so. That's all. That's all I want to say. Right. Yeah, fair. Very good. Um, right. What's next? Um, do we want to talk about maybe? Um, Maybe the Whig history and what that's about. Lexi, do you want to have a go at Whig history, or do are we we're, are we skipping over chapter one point five? Why this particular book? Is there well, anything particular in that that people want to talk about? So let's see. We did the. We kind of just had a, a discussion about the importance of internal inconsistency, um, and oh yeah, the, the next. It, what about the influence of internal inconsistency? Because I think this is, he, he, this is interesting because he's just so sort of going through how much this is common sense um, for just a lot of, for not just like, you know, the New York times, but for like new left review, right? Like even somebody like Robert Brenner, who is an economist, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, um, kind of changed the game. He's an economic historian, you might say. Um, but 
and 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 he was he's like one of the biggest marxists in academia one of the biggest marxist economists one of the biggest marxist theories of crisis and when he's reconstructing marx's theory of crisis he's not using the 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 law the crisis law that marx sets out in volume 3 <laughs> he thinks that doesn't hold for these mathematical reasons even though he's defending the empirical kind of overall crisis theory which is fascinating. I think that's a fascinating point that Kleiman's putting forward here. Who was this we were talking about? Richard Wolf, is this? No, this is Brenner. This is, yeah, this Brenner, is Robert yeah. Brenner. Yeah. Such um, is the power of the Akushio Wolf, Wolf is not too different here. Wolf, I think... Wolf uh, is another consumptionist, but yeah. um, I'm not sure what Brenner is. Uh, no, uh, Brenner... <laughs> The best thing I could say, and maybe I'm not giving him enough credit, is that he's kind of constructed a bunch of ad hoc um, crisis tendencies in order to get around his models not allowing for a fall in the rate of profit through technical change. And Fair enough. I, that makes it probably makes it sound like I don't respect the guy, but I, I really do. <laughs> Yeah, anyway. like one thing I'd like to say is that they're like the before we like f f if people think we're just like slagging off all Marxists, like I think a lot of the people who are Marxists who do think that it, it, there is inconsistency, some of them do great work, you know, and it shouldn't be seen as if like we're slagging all their work. Um, I don't know and, if people agree and, and there was there was something called Marxism that you know up through the eighties, which I mean a lot of it was you know, really nuts. Like, and there was this, it was a whole state, at least one state, you know, huge world state being propped up by it that uh, fell and it all looked pretty dumb. And so you had even a lot of people that were true believers or commies or, wh or whatever, like be like, well, shit, I guess it's time for me to grow up intellectually, be intellectually honest. Like there was a big old thing called Marxism that fell and it took, a, you know, when that went, it took a, um, Marx's reputation with it. Um, and maybe that I'm defending some people that weren't as intellectually rigorous as I'd hope. But I think it's important to stress how big uh, just the world historic kind of depression of the left has in disorienting our ability to make sense of the world. And that's why it's so important to go back to this kind back of Back to basics. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Go back to the to the root. Okay, so will we will we move on to the Whig history? Anybody know anything about Whig history? What, um, uh, well, uh, it's a um, it's a term in historiography, uh, and it's like historiography of science in particular, where um, it's it's basically like a, a an uncharitable way to uh, <laughs> talk about. Uh, how people tend to project progress onto the history of science. Um, but Thomas Kuhn, the philosopher of science, um, has, has a lot of resonances with this. I'm not sure if he uses the term Whig history. But, um, but yeah, basically there's this view held by, I think, Kant, but also by Engels, that science just gets closer and closer to the truth. Like... Um, 
really showing off my math chops here. But what is that? An infinitesimal? That thing that just... Uh, asymptotic. Thank you. An You're welcome. A limit. Right. It just it just keeps it just keeps getting closer and closer to the truth while never quite getting there. So that that's that's this idea of Whiggish history that um when when you look back at the history of science or you know uh, the truth is 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 what propels uh, the history of science forward and we're getting closer and closer. It's not sociological, and for Marxists to believe something like that is particularly offensive. <laughs> Yeah, <clears throat> I, I think um, the uh, so he says you know Whig history is one written from the perspective of those who currently hold power and two assumes that the present is necessarily better than the past, uh, um, which is also what you what you said, Lexi. But I think uh, I think sort of the the importance of of this sort of chapter on on. Um, Whig history, or one of them, rather, there are many points to be made. But one of, of them is this sort of, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants thing that you, uh, that um, economics professors or, uh, or um, uh, historians or, uh, you know, even, even, yeah, exactly, or even us on, on the left, right, usually assume that we are at a point now where we know so much more and, uh, and, um, yeah, exactly. And, and you create this sort of, this sort of historical narrative that, Oh, we used to believe X, but now we know X is wrong because Y person Y said that was inconsistent. And so we sort of, we sort of assume that we're always critiquing things from a superior point of view. Um, instead of actually going back to the original text and try to try to uh, steel man them as it were um which i think is a is a really sort of really sort of neat thing i think this uh, this section on on Whiggish history is sort of really yeah. really got to me actually um because i'm i'm certainly guilty of this as well like oh all the things i used to believe are bullshit uh, might be worth, you know, going back to the things I, I used to believe and seeing if they're, you know, uh, if I just interpreted my, my old heroes incorrectly, as it were. And uh, the phrase was introduced by Paul Samuelson, uh, Kleiman, mm. Kleiman says, in, at least into economic history. Um, and apparently he's a proud sort of Whig historian. He sort of he believes that there's something to this view. Um, and I think... If I mean, if you you are thinking of histories of cumulative knowledge, one will be sympathetic that there's some kind of you know build up. But I think for something this um, politically charged, it's very difficult for the social brain to to you know process this properly. Yeah, like economics doesn't function as a science. You know, if there's it's too much power relations going on involved for to be done rationally. You know, I always find it amusing that all the economists were value theorists until like capital came out and then they all became yeah. utilitarians, <laughs> you know? God, that's some coincidence. It's interesting now, in this chapter here, he talks about how Paul Samuelson in the 70s came out with like basically what was the fundamental basic of the critique of Marx's um, uh, economics you know, because in the 70s, people were getting very radical. And, you know, we had SDS in America and all these Maoists and 
um, truck groups everywhere after with you know during the uh, war in Vietnam and stuff like that. And Samuelson came out and did a, a like an extensive critique of Marx. And uh, it's interesting that in Kleiman kind of basically says that this critique was was the thing that all of these other schools of Marxian thought essentially emanated out of, which is interesting. The 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 example he uses is or or that he points to Freeman is that the so-called Copernican revolution in science, where uh instead of thinking that you know the sun revolves around the earth, we come back to the view that the earth revolves around the sun. Well, the point being that this was an older hypothesis. This revolution in science was sort of a return to a previous hypothesis that, as he says, uh, oh, he quotes uh, Feyerabend, the uh, uh, philosopher of science. science. Yeah. Um, Theories are abandoned and superseded long before they've had an opportunity to show their virtues. That's certainly true. I think it perfectly illustrates the uh, the lion, the man and the lion uh, uh, fable, though, because that's exactly what it's what it's a cautionary tale about: is that you build a you build a statue that historicizes a specific fact, which is that the man is stronger than the lion, and that's written by the victor, basically. Yeah, and uh, this is just to leading this whole chapter with that is basically saying that this is the cautionary, this is exactly what, uh, uh, what the fable is made for <laughs> to warn against that tendency. You know, so mathematical economists aren't supposed to be very philosophically sophisticated, but I found this to be a pretty, um, good reflection of philosophy of science. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. He, he clearly thinks that these issues are like that. The qualitative issues are more important, but he just wants to get this quantitative stuff out of the way. It's another thing he says, like this quantitative yeah. stuff is important so that we can carry on to the, 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 the real important philosophical shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it's quite startling because like when you read this book, it's extremely, some places, you know, it's, it's very logical. It's very um, mathematical in some places, and it's really trying to make a very clear argument. But at the start of the book, Andrew says in it that it, it's actually this stuff he feels is, you know, quite a bit secondary to the politics mm. that it talks of and what it could lead to, yeah. which is kind of right. Right. It's surprising whether, you know, when you stick your head through all this book and you get to the end, you know, you don't you don't leave the book with that impression. But you know, um, yeah. that's his politics. Um, he talks a bit. He goes into some of these tactics about what type of arguments they make. I don't think do people want to discuss this. I don't think there's too much point in going into detail here. I I, I just think there are there are some really neat examples um, that could be worth bringing up, like uh, again Thomas Kuhn. Um, or no, sorry, Sharik and, and Reed. The, the the point about uh, a particular way of a particular kind of Whiggish history, where 
the the speaker or the the teacher or the, the professor or the Whig historian tries to make oh, yes. every previous thinker sound like they are just sort of sort of more stupid versions of the professor. Um, like uh, the predecessor is made to look rather like oneself. This particular Whigger strategy is the most effective if it can be pulled off, for it then becomes impossible to read predecessors as themselves. They read rather as if they've been trying to be you all along, as if they've read you but ill understood you. So again, sort of this technique whereby the the Whig historian proclaims themselves to be the the, the final arbiter of like the cumulative the the endpoint of, of of history, you know, going back and, and critiquing all the all the sort of stupid people before him, uh, which is yeah, yeah. No, it, it, there's something like that. He 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 makes this point that people are quoting very particular passages without respect yeah. to the entire uh, work you know, mm -hmm. to make your argument work. And that's definitely, I think, at work when we get through to some of the stuff later on. I certainly feel like that there are, you know, sentences taken, one sentence here to justify a whole schematic of a model, mm -hmm. while in reality that completely contradicts core elements of of uh, of Marx's work, say, for example. But, um, yeah, so, like, you know, that's pretty important stuff. So what's the next then? He he does talk a little bit about pluralism in only one yeah. path forward. Um, yeah, because this is the deal with the idea that the TSSI and proponents of the TSSI are accused of dogmatism. Um, now, it should be said that, you know, the public persona on the internet of climate, shall we say, is, is pugnacious, right? And uh, that sort of leads a lot of people and to have this attitude of like, look, you you know, th there's a there's a true thing in Marx's book, right? Like, um, to have that attitude and to be as let's say pugnacious as Kleiman can be online, um, a lot of people, I think, discount that this claim might actually be true because they see someone like very serious about it. Does that make sense? Like, um, people associate nuance with um, uncertainty, right? It's uh, mm. th thinking about something with skepticism and uh, a lack of conviction, right? Yeah. And, you know, without getting into uh, more personal critiques, I, I do think that, like, this whole in intellectual fetish of, of uncertainty and a lack of conviction is one of the worst things maybe to cultivate, uh, <laughs> like, I don't know. So, yeah, left left activism and science in general. You know, yeah. I I like I like people who are clear and in, in, in what they talk about, and you can then pretty much make up your idea whether they're wrong or not. You know, by looking into it. But at least they argue a spe specific case in detail. You know, I I, I admire that kind of, um, you know, strength of conviction and you know actual intellectual. Back, intellectually backing it up. Yeah. Like, it's, it's the person who's putting forward the theory, you know, thinks it's true. Yeah, like, I, I love listening to... to Ch I don't know anything about linguistics, but I do listen to, the, like, big, long lectures by Chomsky on technical linguistic stuff, and I love the way he just trashes 
other linguists, you know, he'll just go, you know, this is obviously complete nonsense, you mm -hmm. know, and you kind of go, you know, God, it, you know, it's quite, it's pretty harsh, but like yeah. he backs it up with argument and it, it you know, it, it's kind of like what, you know, if we were sitting around in a pub discussing something, you know, we would probably, you know, thrash each other, but it, 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 I, I like that kind of style, I must say. <laughs> yeah. I I'm I'm not I'm not as into it as as maybe you are, Tom. Um, but, <laughs> uh, so you know, shut up. There's, <laughs> but but like I I think I think it's I think it's important also to to like talk about or I don't know if we should talk about it, but but um, just maybe think about how how we talk about stuff a lot on the left, um, especially us like on the quote unquote podcast left uh, because a lot of times I feel that um, we tend to do our own sort of uh, Chomskyite wig history, right? That we, we all have our own sort of enclaves where you are supposed to think that, oh, this and this thinker uh, is bullshit because I read another thinker that we like more now or, you know, uh, one day, Chris Catrone is uh, is the new hot stuff, and then uh, day two, everyone's supposed to hate him. And yeah, a, a lot of times, like listening to leftist podcasts, it's sort of like, you know, do you want to hang with the cool gang or do you want to hang out with the loser gang? And like that is definitely that's definitely massive case on on the left. Yeah, you know, what's the tr what is the trendiest new hot take on Marx? You know, exactly. And and and, and, and so I'm sorry I, I interrupted you, Tom, but I I just need to get this out before I forget it. <laughs> um, yeah, you're so, right. I interrupted you first, so you're okay. All right, okay. Um, <laughs> but like, so a lot of times we we tend to say, you know, uh, I know I, I'm making this up, but. Uh, you know, Kautsky's theory on social revolution was bullshit. Why? Because uh, Julia Kristeva said this, right, or something. Like, <laughs> a lot of times we make arguments by reference in order to sort of paint ourselves as cool thinkers that, you know, if, if you just read this person that I've read, you would also understand why Kautsky is bullshit or something. And I feel that the one of the strengths with this book is that Kleiman actually walks us through step by step the entire argument, making himself open for critique, etc., and the sort of uh, um, secure rhetoric that that uh, someone like Chomsky might have, for instance, uh, doesn't really open up for a, a fair critique, and I think also scares people off because. They don't understand the argument that everyone that everyone's arguing against, and all they hear is that okay, in order to be so so apparently this Kristeva person is a better thinker than Kautsky, so I don't have to read Kautsky because he has been disproved. Like, am I making sense? Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. Sense. I mean, I think I think the sort of the gender, the right impulse is usually just uh, to to just whenever you're trying to put forward a view to try to give what we might call a good error theory to try to have some understanding of why people might disagree with you and how they might have they might come to a different position even if you right. think they're wrong right so the effort 
I mean, and I think strangely enough, Kleiman does this in the book. I say strangely enough because, like, I'm not used to. Alexei mentioned the difference between, you know, the sort of the the weird online persona. Kleiman does this in the book much better than I. You know, certain people who like Kleiman a lot do this in in person, um, where it's you know. Uh, the reason that I'm not so keen on all this, all this kind of, um, you know, what do you call this, this sort of punch-up style of, of, of academic debate is because I think that beyond a certain point, um, it kind of uh, diminishes understanding, right? I, I'm much more interested in getting a sense of um, not just the right position, but also why, why it is the case that everyone has not automatically converged to the right position. Um, and that, right. that that question is as important as you know um, why why you know why what the right position is. And I mean, people mm. sometimes when people have very simplistic answers as to why everyone else is wrong. So, for instance, you know, intellectual dishonesty, um, they're lying, or things of this kind. That's generally just a good, pragmatically speaking, indicator that you know um, they they don't not that they're wrong but that they, they may not have the complete picture. Um, so I just think that this is just good intellectual due diligence, that you know, right. when, when you make the basic assumption that everyone else is not stupid, um, and when you do that, um, it falls upon you to give some account as to when you say that a person is wrong, provide a sort of charitable explanation for why they might be wrong, right? Mm. Uh, this, of yeah. course, doesn't mean that ideology doesn't play a role. This doesn't mean that people can't be prestigious of power, but, you know, the more you help yourself to that kind of explanation, um, the easier it is for you to dis the easier it is for you to dismiss any counter argument um, um, as an example of you know sort of intellectual and sociological pathology. So let's try. Yeah. Let's. I mean, it's gen generally important not to do that all the time. I that was I, amazingly yeah. well put, Thank you. Yeah, Thank you very much for that. That was that was great. Yeah, that's totally brilliant because it captures both what I like about this book, because in a way, this whole book is a big error theory about Marxist economics, like, but also what I'm what I have, like some misgivings about, because I don't understand why, you know, communists would adopt neoclassical theory without trying to defend Marx. Right. I, I feel like there must be some kind of scientific reason that or intuition that they found that they found this move plausible. Right. I should just note that it's possible to take this to extremes. I'm by no means saying that everyone is right or that you have to come up with some convoluted explanation as to why everyone is right. This is a kind of rule of thumb, etc. You know, that's No, it. but it's th that's what makes a charitable pluralist view of things. Yeah. I think one, one, good. <laughs> one thing I would say just Lexi about why did they have this shift to say bourgeois economics to Marxists? I would say that it was typically done by Marxists in the West. You know, that same shift I don't think occurred behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah. You know, and if you look at say the centers of where it happened most in, in England was in, uh, I think Inbridge was with Straffa, who was a pal of Keynes. You know, so there's probably a hell of a lot of reasons why it occurred in the West and why it occurred in America with Sweezy, you know, who was uh, um, both Sweezy and um, Samuelson, you know. Yeah, but what in, I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to say is I, I'm not sure I understand 
the broader scientific reasons for making that move. And uh, I, the one that I could graft onto it is that you can do more complex, higher level maths if you make that simplifying assumption. So say that again. What do you mean? Okay, so um, one of the assumptions that this book is going to take aim at is this um, equation of input costs and output costs, to speak very uh, bluntly, right? And um, that's thought to be some kind of uh, grounding methodological equilibrium, right? And it's my understanding that when you're doing, I don't know, higher level calculus, or, or actually, when I when I see when I see like uh, the models that mathematical economists build, like, and this isn't so much true for the newer computer modeling, so maybe this is going to be an obsolete comment, right? <laughs> but like the kind of math that they're building on borrow from population biology, which is all about this like clearing of of um like clearing of a sort of like market <laughs> to an equilibrium. I find it very hard to describe actually. Like I said, I don't have my mind wrapped around all this and, and why this is happening more generally. So, so that's to, just to respond to the whole error theory thing. Like um, why would economists make this move? Are we too far off track or does that, is this making sense to people? Um, I think you know. I think it's good. Um, why would they? Why would they make that move? Well, I'd say there's a lot of political pressure on them to make that move. You know, given the time that's in it, and I think like if, if there is arguments for why he's inconsistent, you know, I I do think that um, a lot of uh, you know you can make hay in your career by going down some other route. I, I think there's an awful lot to be said for that. I, I really do. <laughs> Because in in the when I walked away from this book, I thought of this move that he's calling simultaneous valuation as an encoding of something called Say's Law. Say's yes. Law was an early mm -hmm. controversy in um, classical political economy, and I say it's a controversy, but really there are only a few people that made arguments against it. No. Uh, what Sismondi, uh, who I don't really understand that well but also famously Thomas Malthus, who had this like, who didn't think, uh, so I should say that Say's Law is the idea that um, supply creates its own demand, right? Is that? Yeah, Say's yeah. so, so, so Law yeah. says that uh, every purchase is a sale and every sale is a purchase. Um, right. Thus, Which is crises shouldn't be able to happen, I think is, is, is where Say ends up at the end of that argument. Um, and one of the people who responded to it was, was Malthus and, and another was Marx and his right against Say's law was hoarding, if I recall correctly. In um, the most, in the most famous horseshoe theory ever, both Malthus and Marx were <laughs> like Say's law is bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Lexi loves a horseshoe. <laughs> I do. It's lucky. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, no, it, so it is a bit strange, but like I, I would just think that, you know, it's kind of inevitable thing if we're actual Marxists, 
you know, we should be looking at the economic conditions for having their effect on and the political conditions affecting the science. Absolutely. That set of intuitions is why I'm a Marxist. However, that only serves me so well in analytical matters. Eventually, it does. Eventually, even bourgeois scientists will have their reasons for adopting new methodologies. Like, even if we think that some concerns in evolutionary biology were driven by ideology, it doesn't mean that, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm thinking about the Lysenko debate in, in the Soviet Union, the Lysenko thing, and Stalin propping up shitty science. And I don't know. But look, look, you only have to look at modern non Marxist economics, say, standards. Yeah, you, you think theory <laughs> that it's absolutely and utterly riddled with fallacy. None yeah. of the empiric backs it up. How does it survive but, if you it know, was actually a science? You know, like that's that's say, true. But it's it true. physics. If it was physics, it would be in the bin. But it's true Tom, for the whole discipline. Like, yeah, Tom, absolutely. You're you're, you're, you're being a Whig historian now. <laughs> I'm being the opposite because I'm saying all the new stuff is bad and the old stuff's good. <laughs> yeah, but you, you need to you need to give us give us reasons. Like I. I I, I'm perhaps the 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 person who's the most sympathetic to to bourgeois economics here. Uh, so why is that? Have you done uh, a degree in it? Yeah, please, please explicate for me here. Uh, well, so when I say when I say like bourgeois economics, what I mean is business economics. Um, when it comes to macroeconomics, it's a completely different deal. I don't know why these two fields don't talk more with each other because their assumptions are um, are completely incompatible. Yeah, I would say I would say that Kleiman would say that business economics is much closer to to the truth. Yeah, and, and, and it's and theoretical closer. stuff. Yeah, so so I'm a I'm studying business business economics now, and like uh, so from. From the point of view of, uh, of procurement and uh, and logistics and, and and purchasing and stuff, and um, it's 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 just my my entire background in, in economics. I haven't read a single textbook in economics. All I've read in economics is reclaiming Marx's capital, uh, like Kleiman's books, Freeman's articles, and uh, Capital Volumes One and Two. Right. So that's my entire background and. Business. Th- th- there are like as as far as I can tell, up until up until now, there aren't really any points where they contradict. In fact, um, so like m- maybe we should get to this more in chapter two. But like so so in logistics, um, when you look at how uh, it w- say you look at a factory and you you're making jeans, right? Um, you want to know at exactly at, in, in all the points that that the raw material goes through uh, until it becomes genes. You want to know how much value is added. Yeah. Because um, and the core assumption oh. is uh, the the genes can can only increase in value if someone's actually working on it. Yeah. If, if, it, if it's if it's uh, so and and it's the exact same argument. Value is transferred from the machines, but uh, only living labor in a in a certain station can add new value. That's built into the core of of, of logistics theory. So that's just like Absolutely. one example. Um, uh, yeah, 
like I agree completely with you. Like uh, it's when you get into theoretical stuff, they don't uh, take like you would never run your business like uh, say marginal th theory would say they've done. Um, They've done like loads of empirical stuff and say that yeah. it's actually the opposite. Marginal theory is not how businesses do it, you no. know. And look at the actual look at how they actually say it. They actually call it added value. Yes, you know that's not a coincidence. It, so like, it's, it's I, not. I would, um, I, would, I would completely agree with you that if you're working in a business and if you were to explain how Marx's economics to them, or if you were to look at business economics, they will line up nearly exactly. Yeah, but not economic theory. Right, but 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 the but the uh, so, but here's here's the here's the weird part is that uh, they will be they will be sort of inconsistent about it, but they will um, uh, so like uh, for instance, we were we were sort of explicitly taught that value cannot be created in exchange because that's the that's a core assumption behind all of accounting theory. If if, if value can be created in exchange then uh, then uh, balance sheets don't make sense um, because you could, oh my God, this is becoming very technical, but, but if, if that were true, um, if, if marginal utility theory were true, then it would be completely incompatible with, uh, with you know, basic accounting practice. Um, it, just, it just cannot work in a, uh, in, in a, uh, in an actual business, so we were we were taught this with sort of semi-Marxist ling lingo, actually. Um, well, I, so, yeah. this, this is a good this is a good um, foray into the next chapter. Why don't we walk from that okay. into this? Cool, because it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, like, um, and I, I don't I, I don't have any disagreements with what you're talking about. I I agree wholeheartedly and even when it comes to the debate on the falling rate of profit which we'll hit later yeah. about how they actually calculate their profit is actually the way climate and these guys say it should be and marx would say it should be done it's, which it's is the on way, historical cost it's the way any not, person who would want to value a stock looks at profitability it's absolutely it, yeah it, 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 so Again, like where where do these you know neoclassical people come from? Like I, I I don't understand it. It's 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 not from the rich people. Like the rich people go to business school, <laughs> you know, um, and they all operate under the assumption of some kind of labor theory of value. So I'm, yeah, you know, yeah, like okay, because my intuition here is well, I guess these economics people are just ideologues. And I, I think that feels like a too simple uh, conclusion. It feels like it's a very satisfying conclusion, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah these people but are I, just I, stooges, man. Right? Yeah, like yeah. You, seem to, you seem to be very re reluctant to it. I, I don't have any reluctance whatsoever. Let's well, see. You know, I mean, I, I think that's true on the whole, but is there anything else? Well, here, let me just say this, like before I got into Marx and all this stuff around 2000 and like, what was it, six or seven, I went on holidays to the States with my folks and we're coming back. And I used to be like, I used to be one of these economy, economist reading dudes, you know, who thinks that's that's the height of, of knowledge. And uh, I was right. coming back and there was like, I saw, I had read like six months before there was some like, puff piece on Obama in The Economist and I was coming through the airport and there I saw it was Obama's audacity of hope, 
right? And I was like, mm. oh, God, I'm going to read this. And uh, I bought it and I read it at home. And, you know, you read it all. And I read it at the time and you could tell that he was like a very good writer and he was like a very smart guy and all that. But I, I fell for all his bullshit. 100% fell for all the stuff before I ever had any kind of uh, radical politics uh, exposure. But it's like when I read that book, like now, I would laugh at all the things that would be in it. And I would say, well, he's obviously just a stooge and he's full of it when he does this. Well, Why right, but, but that's, and, that's and a campaign book, right? That's a campaign okay. book. That's, that's not the textbook coming out of uh, Oxford, right? But like, think about what, think about like, you know how could an entire how could an entire like uh science of economics go from labor theory and go off to utility marginalist theory like mm -hmm. that's like a jump like from classical physics to you know um uh to uh, uh um to relativity you know to to mm -hmm. general relativity like you know, one actually end up working. When they do a big shift like that, it's usually about what it can prove. And like, how can the new one be less good than the old one? Like, you know, I just, I just think that it's pure power in politics. I don't, I don't see why you have such reluctance to believe that all these guys, knowingly or not, are just stooges. Amog, what, what's your error theory here? Because that's that's why I think this is a useful concept. Right. Yeah, so I'm just not sure I'm gonna we're gonna be able to get into this here. I mean that like I'm 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 really like I can give I can I this is not I I'm not I, I guess so I guess what I was initially saying was not that there aren't bankrupt paradigms, right? Um my thought was I was making a very much simpler point that uh, you know when you when you want to give a criticism of a view, um, you want to give as much as possible a, an account of what the view gets right as well as what the view gets wrong, right? Um, and I still think that whatever is that just isn't that maxim isn't affected at all by whatever is the case about neoclassical economics because it's just more it's just a very it's a sort of general intellectual rule of thumb which doesn't stand or fall based on the fact that you know power politics happens or doesn't affects or doesn't affect the course of the sciences so that yeah said, so so that said um why i find a useful example so i guess i think that giving a sort of careful there are cases where you can give error theories and your opponents can be ideologues right like it's not obvious to me that that any that those two things are inconsistent right that's what i'm looking for so so yeah. the easiest so i'm not going to defend mainstream economics in any way i have basically the same view as tom um about about what's go what's what's up there um i don't think there is i mean i think that there are the, so, i mean the question as to why people keep doing it um there are a range of different things to say, right? So one thing is that um, there's a range of different subfields where people undertake tiny little projects, um, which which are sometimes very empirical, um, and you know people you know people find it useful to use certain models to just demonstrate certain kinds of very local conclusions. And there's a little bit of like you know um, paradigm sharing there, 
um, paradigm sharing that goes on, as with every science, where it's like not everyone is doing the kind of big picture theorizing. Um, and there's all kinds of little things to say. Um, but I mean, I think, I think that I think that it's basically true um, that there's nothing. Okay, so sorry. Let me just let me just walk things back a couple of steps. So two so two things. One, it's useful to look at sort of Marx's critique of classical economics um, and how he thought that you know Ricardo and Smith were plainly ideologues. Yet he was able to give this very kind of interesting reconstruction of their views, yes, yes. right? And you know, um, talk about how they were getting it. You know, in fact. I think what's really cool is that on the Marxist account of like what it is to be an ideologue, um, there is a sense in which in order to claim someone to be an ideologue, they have to be representing the world correctly in some, uh, correctly in some way, yeah. right? But simply from a particular class perspective, right? So this is what's the case for someone like Smith and Ricardo, right? So, so from the Marxist point of view, you know, Smith and Ricardo are giving, so to speak, the bourgeois point of view on what an economy would look like if it was set up to conform to their interests and to, you know, further their interests over time. And thus, there is in some sense something right about it because it accurately represents, albeit in a mystified way, what bourgeois interests are, right? So, I mean, I, I think that something could, similar could be said for for neoclassical neoclassical uh, macroeconomics like you could analyze it not in terms of so to speak the truth or falsity of its of its of its views which are important but in terms of how that kind of discourse allows you know central banks to function play the role that they do um, you know allows uh, economists to tell um, politicians to I don't know cut spending in recessions and, you know, worsen the lot of the working class, things of this kind, right? Um, so, so, and in that, and, and, you know, in order to, in order to, in order for uh, neoclassical economics to play even that ideological role, it seems like there is sort of, it's getting the bourgeois perspective right, right? It seems like, it seems to me that the Marxist, that, that would be the Marxist thing to say. That would be like the error theory, right? It's like, mm -hmm. why are people saying this? Well, listen, they're, they're representing the world as it should look like in order to comfort this particular kind of class interest. Yeah, I take that as sort of axiomatic. I'm uh, yeah. just sort of pre I'm preparing us to go to delve into 18th century political economy language. You know, like I think for a lot of people, if they know a little bit about economics, they get confused by we're doubling back here. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I would also say that. I think it is misleading to, I, I actually, my view is that there's not that much of a discontinuity um, in, in the end between um, uh, a bunch of sort of reactionary stuff that classical political economy used to say and a bunch of reactionary stuff that contemporary um, macroeconomics says. Um, I mean, this is not, I'm, obviously is not a very <laughs> great insight. People have pointed this out quite a lot. Um, um, but, you know, Anyway, sorry, I don't know where I was going with that. So I think we could just, I'm, I'm happy to just stop things there. Great. I think, I think we're ready to move on to Marx's value theory now that we've sort of addressed the question, why would anyone abandon the frameworks of classical political economy to begin with or, or develop Beyond them, depending on your point of view? 
hopefully we cleared that up. <laughs> oh yeah, um, we solved that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm finding myself being very uh I'm finding myself being very hardcore in this, so I'm gonna have to tone down my hardcoreness. But no, um, no, no. It, it's a good counterpoint. You know what I mean? Like I'm uh I'm trying to be as as because look, at the end of the day, I think this is correct. But I don't just wanna be a... Uh, <laughs> I don't want to be a dogmatic Marxist. I want to. I want to take on. I want to take on like the like the most pluralism I can, because I think <clears throat> at the end of the day, this carries it. I don't think it, this is threatened by pluralism. Yeah. No, I think we should try and be as correct as we can, and also, but not be assholes. I don't know. So yeah, let's. The, the aim is not. The aim is not to. The aim is just yeah, it's to be it's to be as correct as we can, and I and I would take it that like part of being correct is like showing why other people are wrong as as convincingly as we can. That's really it. It's yeah. not that complicated. Anyway, here let's let's jump into what Marx's value theory is for people that have got this far. <laughs> um, hopefully they'll still be with us and we'll have a chat about it. So one thing that that Kleiman kicks off here with it, he makes the point that. Uh, Marx's value theory is about uh, it's not a theory of price and it's not a general explanation of why goods and services have price, that it's literally about the production of commodities for exchange commodity production which is an important point it's one that uh, when I first came to Marx's theory I had all these different ideas about like what's the value of uh, say you know doing a painting or writing a joke or whatever that they really you know usually they don't have any um value that we're talking about repetitive commodity production and that's what drives the economy the economy is primarily about making shoes and cups of tea and microchips and all that type of stuff and that's what marx is actually analyzing yeah and i think I think it's also um, uh, Kleiman makes the very important point that it's not uh, a, a theory generally of exchange. Like there are Marx's theory is very particular to a very specific economy um, and doesn't try to you know go to Barter Island as 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 the joke might be uh, for for other sort of economic schools that that try to have a one-stop shop theory of all exchange and all possible economies. Marx's, Marx's value theory is only applicable to a very, very, very specific type of economy where things are produced for the purpose of being exchanged. Yeah, and also like he, he talks about um, how the, 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 the means of production are owned by capitalists and how uh, competition comes into it. It's about competitive exchange. He also gives an example then about the Trobriand Islands, where they were basically a, a kind of a, a more caste system-based uh, production where things weren't being exchanged based on how much labor that was in them, that they were just exchanged based on your position in society. One guy is in charge of doing this, another family are in charge of doing that, and things were exchanged on that basis. Yeah, this is an important point because um, the classical economists were often read, uh, if they intended this, I'm not sure, um, 
as just giving general theories of what all economic activity is like everywhere in human history. And sometimes Stalinists, and I think this is who Kleiman has in mind, like Stalinist economists, would take that on too. You know, would not read Marx as a theorist particularly of capitalism, but is, you know, doing like a whole history of economic, a model of economic activity before capitalism in value terms. Yeah, I think also he's taken on the bourgeois economics, econo economists, yeah. because they definitely have the idea of, you know, the famous idea of Robinson Crusoe on his island, you know, right. making coconut shells and exchanging them for fish or something, you know. Um, so he's taken on both of them, but he's trying to make make the case that it's to do also, you know, also the competitive nature. So. Let me see. I'm not being exactly clear. He breaks up value into basically in labor into two types of labor uh, under capitalism. He, he he breaks it up into concrete labor. So this is the idea that say you're at home in your house and you decide to bake a cake. Your concrete labor is of baking that cake. But also then this idea that Marx has of abstract labor. And this is say labor, say for example, that you are not just going to eat that cake in your house you're going to sell that cake in the market at that point the price that you're going to be able to get will be this kind of abstraction from just your own simple labor and this averaging over all the cake makers in the country and how much labor they take to do it so you've got this, this kind of dual aspect of labor we've got concrete labor which is the kind of actual labor to do the thing. And then we've got this abstract labor is abstracted away and it's an average over everybody's labor doing that similar type of labor. Yeah, and what's... Sorry, go ahead, Lexi. Yeah, just what's important about um, abstract labor is that it creates value in this world of commodities. And it's important to distinguish the cake itself and the concrete labor of the cake and the pleasure of eating the cake. Uh, from from the production of a commodity and the buying and selling of a commodity. And while when you bring the cake home from the market, you eat it and you're appreciating its use value or you have you have a, a specific time type of qualitative wealth. what what this theory is concerned with is the quantitative value on the market and how the market pressures create an emergent, yeah, uh, determination of value by labor time. Absolutely. So we have these ideas of use value, which is the usefulness of the object, and we have the exchange value, which is the price. And Marx has as well the the actual uh, value he calls it, which is the amount of socially necessary labor time involved in making that cake. So that's a for me, that's always a, a tricky um, phrase. Socially necessary labor time is basically the average amount in the economy to take that of labor that it takes to make that cake. So the average for that cake is three hours. That's the value of that cake. And it's important. It's, impo it's useful to note, and Kleiman does towards the end of the, the end of section two point one point two that. The idea that value is socially necessary labor time is not a definition. I think this is very useful to yeah useful to note. 
Um, it's supposed to be this like generalization that that holds once, as Lexi says, like market dynamics have played themselves out in particular ways. Sorry, not market dynamics, but you know, capitalist dynamics. Yes. Right. Yeah, it's an empirical. So, all right. So, yeah, explain that again, Amal, because I was reading that there today and it struck me as strange. So explain that again. Right. So I think the thought is that um, uh, we're thinking. So, so what is the claim here? The, value, the claim here is that the exchange value of the commodity, what it exchanges for, right, um, is determined by the amount of labor needed to produce it. Right. So what a commodity exchanges for is determined by the social average of the cost of production um, expressed in labor time, right? Um, is the claim, I mean, I take it that the claim is that, I mean, I, I think I want to read this in terms of the value of, a, the exchange value of a commodity um, converging um, over time, um, or at least like, you know, converging, maybe read that in like a modeling sense to, to, um, the, so, the social average, um, given, you know, uh, maybe one or two cycles of, you know, uh, economic activity. Um, because you might think that uh, exchange value and socially necessary labor time um, um, can, can diverge, right? You might think that, um, you yeah. know, yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. Does that, does that okay, so... Yeah, so let me see if I oh, oh. let me just try and put this uh, and see if I have it right. That he's saying that this idea that the commodity's value is determined by the socially necessary labor time, he's not saying that's a definition that always has to be true. He's saying that this is what, if you look to the marketplace, is what is actually going on that we see empirically. That's the kind of idea he's trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, correct. And <clears throat> so. so Firehead. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. So, um, I I just have um, um, two things. Of uh, one is um, we're not yet talking about exchange value. We're talking about value. Yes. Um, this is this is this is going to be really important later on in the text. Um, so uh, he's he's not saying. Kleinman is not saying Marx's theory that a commodity's exchange value is determined by the amount of labor needed to produce it has often been construed as a definition of the commodity's value, but this is incorrect. Blah, blah, blah. He's saying Marx's theory that a commodity's value is determined by the uh, amount of labor needed to produce it, etc., etc. To someone who's new to oh, yeah. Marx's value theory, uh, this might seem like, well, okay, what's, what's the big deal? It is a big deal um, because Marx, and you hinted at this too, Tom, um, there are many economic thinkers before Marx that uh, differentiated between use value and exchange value, right? Um, however, uh, Marx's deal is that he, Marx also makes a distinction between exchange value and value, and those are two. Th those can be two very different magnitudes um, in Marx's value theory. So we're not th th at this point in the actual text. We're not dealing yet with exchange value. Kleiman doesn't mention that term. He talks about value. Just so we're super, super, super. That's true. Uh, 
anal about he this. Does, <laughs> you know. He does talk about price, though. And yes. prices, exchange value. Yeah, prices, yeah. exchange value expressed in, in, in money. Yeah. Yes. That's, so, that's the one time he mentions it, but it's, it's super important to be very careful. It's true. <laughs> and and if, if it's possible, the, there's some, I've never liked the phrase, uh, the, the term use value for, mm -hmm. for, for the very Marxist reason that um, it, use value is really referring to wealth that is not really part of the value, the commodity value system. Like, and yes. let's like, be explicit there what we mean by wealth because people right. get confused by this normally. Well, it's be, the reason that people are confused is because this distinction is not there in bourgeois economics. Value is wealth, right? And what Marx is trying to say is that, well, there, there's this qualitative thing, it's the deliciousness of the cake, you know what I mean? It's this experience or this service or whatever it is. When you go into the world of value and commodities, you're abstracting from that. Uh, he says value is abstract wealth. So we're cleaving a world of these different qualitative wealths, these use. Uh, I'm going to call them utilities. I don't, I don't use the phrase use value. I think that's confusing. Like, I, I think he, he also talks about things like, you know, the view of a place, you know, being able to breathe clean air. Yeah. Um, you know, your general, you know, being able to be out in nature and, you know, that there's a wealth to that, but there's not a value on it. Well, it taps into this, you know, this true, like, kind of folk wisdom that you can't put a number on everything, that there are just certain things that are just, it's just a matter of, of the, the quality of it. And, um, and that there's something about, and this gets into sort of the romantic part of Marxism, right? Is that capitalism is trying to rationalize everything and it's going to miss something. And it's, it's when it's encoding it, it's always going to miss something vital. And I think that's part of his critique of, of, of exploitation, how okay. this all operates anyway. So, okay. So, so Mm. Sorry, uh, go ahead. Yeah, so so I'm. Uh, I, I I just want to like interject that um, even without any sort of romanticism or or uh, you know how should I put it this um, like could, you know well it, even without any sort of romanticism the the thing at like use values are uh, the all if you add up all of the use values in the commodity in in a in, in an economy you will have all of the economy's wealth. So total wealth equals total use values. Mm -hmm. uh, even if there is no romanticism about this, what it, what it basically states is like materially in this economy, uh, people can breathe fre fresh air. There are, uh, everyone has access to a car. Basically it's like, it's living standards. It's, it's what's mat actually materially there. Like they're there, actually, you know, there that people that people can use and that people like and whatnot. Um, and all of these things are concrete and they're heterogeneous, right? So something might be totally useless to me, but of great use to you, right? So it's heterogeneous. It's 
um, the, the people have people, people have different needs, and uh, what counts as a use value is sometimes going to be completely individual. What happens in commodity production is that you also have this abstract component where it doesn't really matter what it is that you do or your own, or you own, right? So if you have a job, you're not really you don't really care that much about you know what it is you actually physically do. I mean, maybe you do, right? But the at the end of the day, you're doing that in order to receive a certain amount of value. You're doing it to to receive a certain uh, magnitude of cash, as it were, and that's that's the abstract component. The the uh, the 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 um, the the what he calls it abstract wealth wealth as such mm. considered without regard to its to its specific physical form mm -hmm. is what he calls ab abstract labor. So uh, all of these terms can get a can get a bit confusing. But I just wanted to like even exactly. even if we do away with all the all the fluffy stuff, it's still true that there are things actually there that we can use that don't necessarily have a price tag on. That's really. It will also be useful, I mean, one just another kind of Marxist internal reason to not be fluffy, um, so to speak, um, is that, you know, we want to we want to have an imminent critique of capital yeah. production, right? We want to, so to speak, criticize capitalism according to according to its own goals, its own assumptions, things of this kind, right? So uh, the claim is, in fact, you know, and Lexi knows this claim as, as well as the rest of us, um, that capitalism is not, in fact, rational, <laughs> right? Um, that the, 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 what we have here is only the appearance of rationality, right? Um, the, exactly. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Anyway, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna belabor this point. Sorry, Tom. Go ahead. No. Yeah, I thought it was a really good point that Emmanuel made there. As in, like, if you think about like what GDP is some kind of measure of is the amount of labor or something that was performed in the economy in the last year, some kind of labor measure. But like, we there's no labor. In, in your pigeon population or the flies or the bumblebees that are outside. There's no labor measure of the, of the air and there's no labor measure of whether you have nice, uh, nice seaside or spectacular mountains. All these things that add to life that would be in that kind of, you know, sum of use values that Emmanuel was trying to talk about there that aren't represented when we talk about commodity production and value. This is an entirely separate system. So yes. we've got to have that idea in our head. It's a very good way to think about it, I think. Um, so just going on to the next thing about value transferred. Would you like to talk about this, Emmanuel, because you're, you're doing your business economics uh, <laughs> and you like your uh, depreciating assets. Do you want to talk about this a bit? <laughs> All right. Um, so so maybe, I don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe we could put up my little sort of going through of, of, of this so that people could could appreciate your your joke uh, Tom <laughs> but, uh, uh, let's see what page are we on um, all right so value transferred and new value added um, so Kleiman is gonna say that Marx said well, let's let's just say Marx says and and have it sort of immediately understood that whenever we say Marx says, we're sort of implying Kleiman says that Marx says. Um, but the, 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 the core sort of thing is that when you produce a commodity in a, in a commodity economy, uh, a capitalist economy, um, what is going to determine the, the value of that commodity? Well, one of them, uh, one of the components is 
the value transferred by means of production. And this sounds super Marxist-y, but it's really just saying that um, if you buy a machine that doesn't need any sort of human input, it just automatically does things, right? Uh, maybe, let's say, um, as as in, in, in that document, let's say you buy a plumbus, right? Everyone needs a plumbus. And the, the plumbus is going to produce schlieb, and it produces schlieb all of its own, right? No, no labor is needed. No, no humans are needed anyway to to uh, to make it produce schlieb. It just keeps on going. Um, and let's say that uh, a plumbus has a finite lifespan, so maybe a plumbus can produce schlieb for ten years, right? Um, all that what what that's saying is that the the, the, the value, the, the, the price uh, that you acquired the plumbus for is going to be at, at the end of the lifespan, the entire, uh, the entire, this is actually wrong. Kleiman says this is wrong, but let's just run with it for the time being. The, the value of the plumbus, the, when, you, when you go to market and you buy the plumbus for say $1,000, at the end of its 10 year lifespan, its entire value is going to be converted into Schlieb. So if you paid $1,000 for the plumbus, it makes Schlieb for 10 years. At the end of that period, you have no plumbus, but you have a pile of Schlieb. What is the value of that Schlieb? Well, it's exactly equal to the amount you originally spent on the plumbus. So no additional value has been created. It has only been transferred uh, throughout this period. And so... So, Emmanuel, when it comes to like uh, accountancy, this is how accountants do it in their balance sheet, isn't it? That's you know, their profit and loss. Yes, that they actually. Yes, the 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 uh, the one the the, the sort of um, exception to this would be um, uh, like if you own houses or apartments or things like that, or you own something that you speculate on, like a financial assets such as stocks or bonds or or something. But in, in general, uh, at least in Sweden, it's, it's considered a criminal offense to uh, assume that the plumbus is going to do anything else but convert its, its entire value into Schlieb. Uh, you, 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 can't, uh, you can't account for it in, in any other way um, by, uh, by standard sort of accounting practice. Um, wow. So... So that's that's one component, and so this is one determinant of the of the value of of the commodity. In this case, the the schlieb. Um, but the the uh, the other thing is that if we actually do something with it, uh, and we we engage with it, and and we perform living labor, what Marx calls living living labor on it, we add new value. So every commodity's uh, every commodity's value is in one of the determinants is the value transferred by already performed labor, right? So any machine that you buy um, is going to be comprised entirely of already performed labor because, you know, the, the work is done for you, right? You're, you're purchasing the machine in, in its entirety. So that the, the, the sort of value or labor embodied in the machine is going to transfer all of its value over time. That's one component, and then you have the new value added. 
by living labor. So you have value transferred that can never increase, the, the, the value transferred to the product can never increase the, what Kleiman says, and this is specific to, to the TSSI, this is specific to Kleiman's interpretation. The value of the commodity that is transferred from the machinery can never exceed the price you paid for it, right? Then that, there's that's the, that, sorry, can I interrupt? That seems to me to be kind of a bit strange. I must, I must say, like, say for example, I'm why is that? I'm going to make. Well, say if I'm, for example, I'm going to make some shoes in the mm -hmm. morning. Yeah, and uh, I go and instead of buying the leather, I steal the leather. Yeah, okay. and then I, I I sell the I I I could do the shoes and I sell my sell my shoes. Mm -hmm. Now I I think that like like in that in that case would my shoes not have the same value as a shoe that somebody actually paid a price for it? Yeah, it it would, but it might exchange for less. So it wouldn't. But it, 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 yeah, it, it still doesn't. So even even if you stole it, right? It's still true that you have, um, I don't know, say, say you stole a couple of shoes worth $50, right? Uh, you, go, you, go to, you go to the market, you find some nice shoes that you like, uh, you see that the price tag on them is $50, you steal them, and you add them to your closet. Now, it's still true, even though you didn't pay anything for it, it's still true that you own an asset, in this case, $50 worth of shoes in your closet. But um, let's say I steal the leather and then I apply labor to the leather. Yeah. And the leather, let's say the leather should be worth 100 pounds and I do mm -hmm. uh, 100 pounds worth of extra labor on them. Right. So to me, those, those shoes will actually will sell for 200 pounds and that will be the value of the shoe. Like, well, the, the, the things can sell above or, or below their, their values. It still does not, if, even if you steal the leather, it doesn't detract from the fact that you still own, uh, in this case, a hundred pounds worth of leather, whether or not there was any transaction going on between you and the leather supplier. Are we not getting caught in the weeds here? Because uh, this is like a ceteris paribus model, right? This is uh, all, all things remaining equal, right? Because yeah. the, the the example that I have in my head is, okay, I buy my plum bob from Sim City, and then you know I, I come home and I have a nice plum bob. I, I paid 50 simoleons for it. And then Sim, uh, Sim City goes to Worth Farmville and all the other plum bobs are destroyed and the price for Schlieb skyrockets. You know what I mean? But that's still... That's still not taking the ceteris paribus, the okay. all things remaining equal thing into account, right? Like, sure. so the idea is that this is the ideal functioning of an economy. Marx's theory is much like the bourgeois theory he's critiquing and, and in my view superseding in that, you know, this is the ideal average of capitalism. But, and yeah. that if there was some kind of mitigating event, like the things that we're talking about, like, oh, you stole all of your, <laughs> you stole your, your, your stuff. You know, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about like, okay. Yeah. No, so, so, so um, uh, a good example of this, uh, that, that, um, maybe will further elucidate my point, uh, that, that this is true, whether or not you steal anything. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
imagine if you inherit a house or you inherit a, a castle or you inherit land, right? You have not paid anything for it, but you still own a set value that that castle or land or whatever represents. The, the, the fact that you didn't pay for it has nothing to do with the fact that you still own an asset with a certain value attached to it. Okay, I understand exactly what he's trying to say here. Sorry, and I I was being very stupid. Let me let me just right. <laughs> see if I if I say this right because you know sometimes you read it and you, you, your head expands, explodes, and goes in the wrong direction. Yeah. And the reason why he's saying that it's the price is the thing that 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 the value transfers is because things don't sell at their values; they sell at their prices. Uh, so mm. yeah, so if so, say for example. For some reason, the leather, really, the amount of labor that goes into the leather is, say, $20 per square meter, right? But it actually only sells at $10 per square meter, okay? Loads of different uh, commodities don't sell at their prices. That, that in, in fact, they should probably will rarely ever sell at their actual value. They sell their prices, but not their value. Let me be, correct myself right. there. So when I go and, and do something to the leather and then I sell them, it's... I sell them, say, for fifty pounds. You know, uh, I'm not selling the amount of full labor that's in contained in the dash. I'm selling the the price plus the labor, the price value of the labor that's been put into it, and that's the amount that they will be sold at. Cor Have I made that very unclear, or yeah, is that clear? Yeah, but um, uh, even if things, even if everything sells at value. The value transferred by machinery or means of production is still going to be determined by the price. Price, exactly. Yeah, that's that's, exact, that's exactly exactly what I'm trying to we'll, say. Yeah. I don't know how far we will get into chapter two, but this really, really matters. In in fact, it's one of the yeah. core assumptions behind the behind the TSSI because um, if uh, Marx's theory cannot make make sense uh, essentially you run into um consistency problems um if you assume that the value transferred by machinery is related to the value of the machinery mm. instead of the price you actually paid in the market yeah. the th this is a this is a core thing with it with a with the tssi that uh is hopefully going to make a lot more sense when we get to the end of chapter two. But um, the, 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 the TSSI interpretation is that the value, the value transferred by the means of production is related to the price paid to acquire the means of production and not to their values. Yes, um, and, and also... And also to be very precise at the moment that it enters production. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's the most important point. But we'll get to that later on. Yeah. Thank Can you we... for clarifying that. Quick question. Quick question about uh, the way this links up with Kleinman's terminology at the beginning of page 22. So are we thinking of price paid at the time of production? That's current cost. So what he, what um for the TSSI what what is what it is is if I spend if I buy leather today at twenty dollars square meter and I don't actually start producing st shoes with that leather until next week 
by which time the price has gone down to $15. It's right. the $15 is the value that's going to be transferred on. Right. And, and yeah. that, that, that's, that's what Mark said, and that's very important for when we get on later on to the, to the, to the uh, getting into the detail of where this confusion about inconsistency lies. So it's not the price that you paid, it's the price of the commodity at the time of production begins. Right. Okay. No, so, I, so I get that. I'm just trying so to figure out how that squares with the, what, what Kleiman actually says. I mean, I'm not saying it's inconsistent at all. I'm just saying uh, inflation thing. Do you, um, want to read the bit, do you want to read the bit there that you're, and then yeah, we'll yeah. talk about it more. So, so the word needed serves to indicate that the amount of value transferred depends upon the current cost rather than the historical cost of the means of production and B, the socially average expenditure on the means of production. So could you just translate that into the terms you guys were talking in? Okay. Um, so yeah. I think the current cost, that's the current cost. So it's not what you paid for it. It's the value that, that will be transferred is the, the price that it currently is at the moment it enters production. Got it. Yeah. And the socially average expenditure on the means of production. So, uh, what does that mean? Um, and that's just the price of the 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 means of production. Huh? Oh, this, that's total total prices spent on means of production in the entire economy. Yeah. Oh, this makes me think of my uh, the the buying the plumbus from SimCity, and then all the other plumbus is getting destroyed, right? I think I didn't understand this as well before you kind of broke it down, but like, uh, yeah, you, you use the current cost of the means of production and then the socially average expenditure. This all makes sense. This is something unique to the TSSI is what you're saying, um, Emmanuel. Yes. And so um, I was in a, a capital reading group with, with um, Andrew Kleiman and he, he talked about this being one of the sort of, contentions about the TSSI because Marx problematically in volume one says that the value transferred relates to the value of the machinery and uh, or the value of the constant capital rather um, and Andrew said that um, if I recall correctly that this must be a mistake right the the, the if his theory is to make sense, if the then we need the TSSI, and for the TSSI to work, it needs to be the the, the current price of the means of production. Uh, so there might actually be a, a a typo there. But in 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 Marx's original work, the word is actually the value of the means of production, and this is one of the sort of yeah. things that that causes some stir or, or, or debate on on Marx's theory. And just. just Sorry, go just go just one thing. Sorry, I'm a, and I think in places like Mark uses value in the term value interchangeably with price, like and some places that he, I think it's in the book in a later chapter that you know he actually mixes up his lingo in a number of places or uses the term differently. So I think that's where a lot of confusion comes out of, because so much of it is like these terms like value are like already English language terms that don't have precise meaning and it's easy to go wrong. I don't know if I'm right about that, but I think I am. 
So, so just just one last time, so that I can get it right in Kleinman's terms. Um, um, so, the amount of value that uh, that uh, the amount of value transferred depends on how much you're paying for the means of production at, at so how much the means of production costs at when you start producing at the right. point of production, and how much people are sp uh, how much people are spending. Um, across the whole economy, on average, on the means of production, right? And both of these, like prices, money expressed in monetary terms. Yes. Okay. So, so, so the, the 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 key thing is sort of to reread the first sentence again and again and again until it starts making sense. Right. It's okay. the value that is needed to acquire the means of production. So. And this goes exactly to, to what Tom said, you know, with the example of, of the leather. When you start producing, what is the value needed to acquire the means of production that you're using? Does, okay. does that make, make more sense? And, and, and that value is going to depend on these two things. One of them is the socially average expenditure and the means of production, right? That's, that's going to be one of the things that determine the value needed to acquire the means of production at the point when you're actually starting to produce. Can somebody explain that B bit to me? Because I don't know if I actually get that. Like okay. Like once, once the bombs hit SimCity and, and Farmville and all the shoes, most of the plumbop factories are destroyed. And when, when Emmanuel sent this document <laughs> talking about Plumbus and Schlieb and what is this stuff? And it's I went it, on to Google and well, it doesn't exist. Well, Emmanuel is translating this into Simlish, obviously, which is oh, why I chose SimCity. Okay, Go back but, to the shoes. It's it's basically a B in shoes. Come on. Uh, all right, all right. What's well, a plumbus? How, how it's made, the plumbus. Look it up. Everybody does need a plumbus. Look, um... Okay. Explain shoes. Be in shoes. Oh, Christ. So the, the I, for, I forget the actual details of the leather shoe example. The point is that um, what is the socially average expenditure in the means of production? Why is that different than just the cost? That's, you know what? Great question. Why is that different than the current cost? Socially average expenditure. Like what in terms of current cost? That's assuming that that's also a socially average current cost. Like, is that what he's saying? It's the average cost, or that's is that is that the difference, right? Because it doesn't. It's not said that this is a a socially well, but that, so this is this. It has to be because the historical cost that you actually paid for current, it. Historical cost, yeah, it's the current cost. But is it the historical and current cost? of that particular one, or is it what the, what so, it, so what, I, like the, do, do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, is it the yes. current cost of, of my MacBook Pro or my MacBook Air, even though I kicked it once and that brought the value down, or is it the cost general of, of a MacBook Air that didn't get kicked? Yeah. Right, so so here, I, I, I think that was a really good question, Tom. Uh, and I think, the the way I make sense of this, not saying that it, that it's right, but but Kleiman repeatedly makes the point that current cost and replacement cost are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
I think it's sort of him saying that what I mean by current cost is not, you know, so replacement cost is, is, is something that, that a lot of insurance companies use, for instance, that, it, okay, say you own a, a MacBook or, or you, you, have a, you have a server room, right? And, and it burns down. Okay, so what is the value of those servers? And then the insurance company is going to look, well, what is the cost of replacing those? Uh, but that oh. might be new computers, right, or or something like that. So okay. I think the B right. thing here is him saying that no, it's not the replacement cost; it's um, the 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 socially average expenditure on uh, on the means of production. And it's unclear if he means the means I of production aggregate, but I, I think that's sort of where it's, where he's getting at. Okay, can I just there was a comment in the in the chat um by the libertarian Lenis Rant Rants who I think <laughs> might have actually got it explained. See if this what he says is that A is what you bought the stuff for and B is what you spend to keep it running. So ah. so it's like if if it's the maintenance on the machine, so it's both the cost and the average maintenance. All right, upkeep. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. That's that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There we go. So, um, Yay! Do we, does anybody have any like hand clapping sounds? We should do a cheer for a libertarian lenders. There we go. Good man. Right. So we're over that. Right. right. Two point one point four productivity and value creation. I think we're over that. Does anybody else? Okay. One. Just some Ooh. terms here. Libertarian lenders, come on the show. Sorry, you should you should be on here anyway. He should. Um, the, just so he says the, that the new value is called living labor. So the la value that comes from the dude or the dudette or whoever is working in the shop making the shoes, it, it, that it's their labor is called the living labor, and the stuff that comes from the machinery machinery is called. I think I'm going to call machinery machiney from now on. It sounds much better. <laughs> okay. What's next? Does anybody? Uh, I think we've done that to death. Does anybody have any problems with what we've done there? No, that was that was really great. And if uh, Andrew ever hears this, that's probably a good section to expand and to connect it to accounting more generally. Because I actually thought that that made that more plausible, right? If you know that there is a whole section of uh, of of bourgeois practical economic activity that is uh, like. You're saying there's like laws, you know, like that, that it has to be done in a certain way and that <laughs> that this is being followed here. I don't know. I found that uh, I found that really convincing. Okay. I just had a quick question about the about Emmanuel's replacement cost stuff. So so are you are you happy with thinking of B as a replacement cost? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with a libertarian Leninist uh, interpretation that that actually makes it a whole lot more clear. Uh, in, it, it's right now. It's no doubt in my mind that's that's what he means. Yeah. It's the it's the money for the oil to keep the machine running. And exactly, or your electricity bills or whatever you know. Whatever. Uh, okay. Okay. Let's let's go on. We got a lot of. I don't know if we're going to get through all these different pits today. Maybe we will. We'll see how we get on. I don't think we should go on for like eight hours, <clears throat> but uh, maybe six and a half. The, we're on to the next part is productivity and value creation. Right. Who wants to have a stab at this? Damn it. Okay. Let me do what's, it. What's that? Okay. This is a bit where um, I think Emmanuel was getting a bit confused. So let's mute him 
and yes. then we can chat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> I've just spent the last half hour confusing everybody in the last bit. So what the hell can I say? Now, um, the work. Okay, so this is where we get to the concept more explicitly of the socially necessary labor time. I think. Um, okay, so let me let me just write, let me just read a little bit first, and then we can discuss it. The workers' labor does not, however, add new value in pr proportion to its productivity i.e. the physical output per unit of labor. An hour of average or socially necessary labor always yields the same amount of value, independently of any variations in productivity. Okay. Emmanuel, what's your problem with this line? And, and explain it to us. Right. So let's just, let's just walk through the, the, the implication here and I I have done this in a table. Uh, I I don't know if you can guys if you guys can see it. Maybe I'll I'll put it up later. But the 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 idea here uh, is that if we uh, if we have a um, uh, let's let's use Kleiman's terms and his specific examples here. Um, so he says. To better understand this perhaps counterintuitive idea, assume that productivity doubles throughout an entire industry and that for simplicity, no value is transferred from the means for production to the product. So we have a product that's 100% comp comprised of living labor. Um, in this case, when the same amount of value, I'm sorry, in this case, when productivity doubles, an hour of labor produces twice as much output but the same amount of value. So each unit of output has only half as much value as it did before. Um, so the idea here is if we, um, if, if we say the entire industry produces $1,000 worth of shoes, the um, and uh, let's say that we we can we produce one thousand shoes, uh, or let's let's say a hundred shoes, right? So the the entire industry is one hundred shoes to a value of one thousand dollars, right? Uh, during a certain period, uh, and in period two, we double our productivity, meaning that uh, we produce twice as many shoes. But the amount of value at the at the end is going to remain constant, and what this means is that the value of shoes has to have right. So, in other words, if you double the productivity, the value of each unit produced is going to be halved, right? Another way of stating stating this in in mathematics is that the value of a unit is going to be one divided by the increase in productivity. So if the productivity triples, the amount of each unit has to decrease to a third in order to offset this difference such that the value produced in the end can remain constant. Um, does, does that make sense as his interpretation so far? Because from now on is, we're, I'm, I'm going to explain why why I have problems with this. So um, let's say that we have uh, we have period one where we produce a hundred shoes, um, so a hundred units. The total output is one thousand. So we could draw this up as a table, and 
we have amount of units produced, let's just call that U, and the total output, the total value output of the industry, let's call that W, right? So in period one, we have um, 100 units, uh, 100 units, total value of 1,000. That means, that determines that the value of each unit is going to be 10, right? Period two, next row. Um, productivity doubles, so the amount of units double. So now we have 200 shoes. We look to our right-hand right side, and W is already written in there for us. That's what Mark says. The, the, the socially necessary labor has to be constant. So W is still set at 1,000. This determines that the value in, of each shoe in period two is going to have. Now, what happens, what would happen in period three if we went back to producing 100 shoes? I.e., we have the same amount of units as we did in period one, but with the productivity of period two. And here's where you run into some problems. Which number are we going to carry from period two down to period three. So let's see if it, damn it, if, if uh, I don't know if you guys can see this, but it makes a whole lot, it's, it's made a whole lot easier if you draw this up as a table, right? So, but Kleiman is saying that between period one and two, the $1,000, so the W part, the far, the, the, the thing furthest to the right, that's going to remain constant, right? So we know it's $1,000 in period one, that means in period two, we need to carry that down such that that is $1,000 as well. Uh, all we need to know in that case is the amount of units that's going to give us the, the per unit value, right? Here's the problem. If we have the amount of units again so that we're back to the total output of period one, are we allowed to carry the same productivity with us? In other words, do we carry the price for the production of each shoe from period two? So if, if that's the case, then you know, we, we carry down the, the number five. So every, every, we're still producing, it's still taking us half as, as, as long to produce a shoe because we did this productivity thing in period two, right? However, if we do that, then W needs to have. Yes. Yes. That's exactly right? precise. So, so W goes to half, and so you, you're only working 500 hours of the year instead of 1,000, and you're producing the same output as in year one. Cool. But if that's the case, then, so let's bring up Marx's quote again. If, if that's the case, then why is Kleiman carrying W from period one to period two? And and why would sorry when you say W, um, you're talking about a, a, a table out. we're going to come. You're talking about a table that we're going. Well, he does. No, I, um, so what table are you talking about here now? When you say I, I, W, I, I, I haven't I haven't uh, done this done this digitally um, or or anything. Okay. But maybe, maybe if you can see on the way. Oh, fuck it. Um, I think Tom has your document up here. I have the document. Yeah, yes, but I have a table I, for it. I don't have it in, do the, a table. in the document. I'm no. I'm, 
Yeah, that's oh. the problem. Ah, um, excuse me. So, uh, so, so like, so, so, explain to me what the problem is. Um, so, I'm going to put them. Explain again. Why? What is the problem with, about people just working half the amount to produce the same amount? So, if the if they work, so if if productivity doubles in 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 period two, right? Yeah. Kleiman says that the per unit value is going to half by yes. the one over productivity value, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. How do we know this? Well, we know this because in period two, the total output remains constant. No, the total the total, the total, the total value labor. remains constant, right? Yeah, the total the total labor remains constant and thus the total value. The total labor remains constant and, and thus the, the total value, right? Okay. Yes. Right. And in the third in the third year you will have reduced labor and yes. reduced output. But yes. productivity remains the same. Yeah, the, so so the, the, the productivity will carry over for period from period two into period three. In which yes. case, the, the 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 total amount of value produced will drop by half. Yes. But if that's true, then um, the quote here doesn't really Sorry. make sense to me. Okay, read the quote there, and I'll highlight it, and we'll see what what the whereabouts is this. Labor does not, however, add new value in proportion to its productivity. An hour of uh, physical output per unit of labor, an hour of average or socially necessary labor always yields the same amount of value independently of any variations in productivity. Yes. So let's look at that. So that the first in the first year, the workers labor, uh, the value was 1000. The yeah. physical output was 1000. In the second year, yes. the same amount of labor, the physical output was 2000. Yes. OK, so that's what he's saying. Yes, and that's now that's all he's saying. Yes, okay, but but that's it. Like, okay, so but 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 the problem being, if we if we return to to the the same amount of, of, of physical output in period three as we had in period one, yeah. then the total value will have dropped by half. In which case, yes. it's not the same amount of value. Yeah, you, but they've worked less. They've worked half the amount. Okay, cool. That's what. Yes. Yeah, yeah, like, right. like okay. literally, that's, that's all he's solid. saying. Okay, cool. That's literally, all he's saying. I'm not trying okay. to be facetious. I'm literally saying that. That's exactly. You've got it exactly yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. I, I. I was. I was just. I was just confused by by the fact that the way Kleiman explained this was that he held the total amount of value constant through period one and period two, and my trouble was understanding why why exactly he did that would that imply that in period three we hold the same amount of value constant there as well um i think he it's just the way he's written it that's that's what he means good you know, okay yeah, yeah well the cool it's like before you know i was confused with the language previously you know the language can be confusing sometimes but right that, like yeah i, I think mean, that's literally all he's saying one way to think about cool. it is that period one to period two is simulating the effect of a productivity increase without a change in value, right? While period one, period two to period three is simulating like what happens when the value decreases and you hold productivity constant. Right. Right. So he's talking yes. about yes. he's talking about two different kinds of shocks to use okay. a yeah. mainstream economics language that I we probably want to discard. Mm. Okay. Makes makes perfect sense. All right. Yeah. 
Okay, let's let's keep going. So I, I hopefully I'm not skipping over anything for anybody. If anybody in the chat who thinks uh, we're skipping over that, let us know. Um, so I just I'm just trying to get through this because we've got so much to do. The the um then you could talks about how Marx's theory. Uh, okay, so let's let's read read this. This this point is crucial to Marx's theory that labor-saving technological changes tend to depress the rate of profit. Although the technological changes boost productivity, they simultaneously tend to displace workers and thereby reduce the amount of new value added in production. Okay, so this is the idea that as people use more and more machines to save labor, the uh, ratio of money spent on, or the, 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 the amount of labor in each individual item uh, is reduced and the prices uh, get uh, smaller, um, of this, the price reduced, but also the rate of profit will um, reduce. Uh, let me. I'm being very unclear here. I'm getting tired. Let me. <laughs> does somebody else want to take over this one? Lexi, you do it. Yeah. Essentially, we're talking about a um, we're talking about a cycle of diminishing returns, and what what's happening is that um, with less labor, right, uh, and less like less value, um, <laughs> with less labor necessary for each commodity that same amount of value is being distributed throughout an industry. Um, and if that keeps happening over and over, um, basically prices will go the yeah, prices are, it's, it's a race to the bottom. It's described as a race to the bottom. We're, we're getting rid of the thing that makes these commodities valuable on the market. Like it's yeah. getting less and less. It's becoming more and more, uh, I don't want to say worthless, but more and more valueless. Cheap. Yeah, yeah cheap. More cheap. Yeah, just like yeah. me. So the the <laughs> the idea is then as well is that like the the big lump of capital that a, a, a that a, a capitalist will need to invest in machinery always is tending to get bigger. You know, uh, a doctor used to carry around everything he needed in in a bag. You know, and now you go to the doctor's surgery and there's lots of machines. And so the the ratio of money that's put out in capital compared to the one that's put out in labor is growing exponentially. Not well, not exponentially. It's growing. It, it, the tendency is always for it to grow. And if value is only created by the labor, because all the other value is just transferred, uh, the idea of if if profit comes from new labor, then we're going to see that the profit rate is going to be under pressure. And the other idea is that. It's in the it's in the interest of each individual capitalist to introduce new technological change, because if they can produce their shoes cheaper, they can sell them, still sell them at the same value, at the same price. Sorry, still sell them at the same price, and even though they actually uh, didn't actually spend as much as the other guys who were doing it less efficiently, and you can make loads of extra profit at that at the when you first introduce it. But then if the other guys start introducing it, everybody then introduces it, and then the profit rate will go down for everybody. But the capitalists can't help themselves. Yeah. It's just a systemic necessity that they have to do it. If they don't try and increase the productivity, they'll be put out of business. And if they do increase the productivity, they're going to lower their profit rate. You know, it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't. 
basically what's rational for them to, you know, seek this technological advance just creates an irrational effect in the economy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, anything else in that? I think we've, how long will we go? Will we, will we stop? Will we do one more, one more heading and then will we give it a rest for the day? Well, we're almost through the, um, we're, am, am I wrong? We're, all, we're almost through the, the second chapter. Well, we have it's that's two point five on next. But I'm, I'm sorry, the first half of of the of the second chapter. No, we have about eight pages more to do. This okay. it goes up to two point one. It goes up to number fourteen, and we've only gone to five. Okay, yeah, and, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. Okay, and we have been going nearly three hours between our one hour <laughs> messing around with tech at the start and figuring out what the hell we're actually going to talk about. Oh, why don't we just do this one more chapter and then we call it a day for today and then we can do the fun. rest of chapter two probably next week. Um, uh, yeah, there's probably quite a lot in the in the rest of chapter two for even yeah. one Or even the okay. rest of chapter 2.1. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you, Amog. I hear you. Well, who, who wants to talk about this? Okay, this should be fairly easy. Um, why don't Amog? Why don't you have a go yeah, at sure. capital and variables? Sure, sure. So, so there's a distinction. So two point one point five, right? That's the one. Okay. Okay. Whoop. Just let me get it open. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. So there's a distinction. So now we're talking about capital investment, uh, capitalist firms investing in production, and how we think about the sort of value dynamics of that kind of investment. Um, and capital investment, the, the capital value advanced, so, so to speak, the, the, the value aspect of capital investment divides into constant capital and variable capital, right? So constant capital is basically uh, what we were talking about before in terms of value used to acquire means of production. And here, Kleiman uses the phrase that Emmanuel was highlighting earlier on, which I think is very useful. So this is going to be uh, the amount that the machinery and the technology costs plus the cost of maintaining it, right? Um, this is constant capital because this is just, so to speak, the capitalist paying for the value transfer that machinery represents, right? So fixed capital is it sometimes called the constant capital. And then variable capital is the capitalist um, advancing value in order to hire workers. Um, and of course, the workers are, I, mean, I was about to say the wild card, that's not really, that's not really the word to use, but more the, the, they're the sort of, <laughs> the, <laughs> the terrorist, yeah. terrorist is the word you're looking for. No, 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 I, I, I think wild card is, is totally accurate. It's variable capital, right? So the, like, I, the, the reason why he called it variable is that the level of, um, the level of exploitation can be high or low. Exactly. Yeah. You can, you can. You can, you can mess with the amount you're exploiting workers to add new value to your product. And that's the, that's the trick. That's what makes capitalism go, um, you know. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this is the portion of, so variable capital is the portion of the capital that's advanced or invested or, you know, spent um, in order to pay wages. Um, and uh, of course, that, the, the, as Kleiman says, the hiring process sets in motion um, uh, capital accumulation, basically, the increase of the capital value of the firms, right? And of course, the, the key word surplus value 
which is the difference between the, the capital value at the end of the process of advancement um, or accumulation and the capital value at the beginning of the process of accumulation. And of course, since it's only the worker who can add value because you can increase or decrease the rate of exploitation, um, the amount that you're paying the worker and the amount of value the worker is adding, you know, um, sorry, that wasn't a definition of exploitation. That was just me explaining the role of the worker in general. Um, the worker, the worker's labor contributes surplus value, right? Because the machinery just transfers value. Um, it can't, it can't increase or decrease va aggregate value. The only thing that can increase or decrease aggregate value is the value contribution of the worker, um, and that's where surplus value comes from, right? So the increase in capital value. Um, from the beginning to the end of the process. Yeah. Very, okay. very yeah, very, very good. Can I just say one thing? I think you said that constant capital is sometimes called fixed capital. That's a little error that um, constant capital can, a, a fixed capital is, is capital that can't really move. That's, that's um, like buildings and machinery and things like right. that. While also you have circulating capital, which can be like money or, things like that which is also a type of constant capital as in there's no exploitation involved there i yeah, always get that mixed, mixed up myself yeah, yeah. Absolutely. yeah just in case somebody is uh, getting confused and they're reading marks um uh, okay so i think that's pretty good maybe what what is how long is this origin of surplus value chapter we'll be able to hammer through it um okay this, we'll do this one we'll do one more and then we'll go how does that is everybody on for one more chapter before we go Yep. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is like a, it's like a page and a Moog just covered half of it. Okay. Well, uh, why don't you have a go with this one, Lexi, then? Okay. Um, so the origin of surplus value. Um, so the traditional answer for where profits come from is summed up in the phrase buying cheap and selling dear. It's a meme in classical political economy. <clears throat> um, Marx. Yeah. Marx is the great critic of this. Um, instead, um, let's see. So he's trying to make the idea that in, in a case where somebody buys and somebody somebody sells uh, low and somebody buys low, that somebody's made a loss and somebody's made a gain and that it's a zero-sum gain. And he, he's trying to get to the kind of idea that you know there is no value ever created in exchange, that it's always right. from production. Right. And that's that's a zero sum game. Whereas and like what what I was trying to figure out is how like at what level of abstraction to talk about surplus labor, because the famous example that Marx uses is derived from uh, uh, corvée labor, which was a form of forced labor in, in France. And basically he makes this comparison where let's say, you, you know, you make you make a, a bale of, I don't know, you harvest like a bale of wheat a day or something. And um, maybe you would harvest three a week for yourself and four for the Lord. It's really obvious, you know, that where, you know, where the surplus was coming from. But then once you get into the land of capitalism and um, you're dealing with a work day, you know, you might not realize that, uh, four sevenths of your work day is creating profit that's not going to you um, as the laborer. And so instead of selling labor, which is most, most classical economists and most economists 
think of labor markets as you're selling your labor, right? Instead of that, Marx says, no, you're not selling the value of your labor. Labor is where all this comes from. What you're selling is the ability to work. You're selling your labor power. Um, you're selling this like kind of latent potential for value creation. Like that's what you're really selling. You're selling your ability to drive profits as a laborer. And, and then the capitalist will, reaps this as profit. This is the origin of surplus value, surplus value being in value terms, profit, right? Like That's right. Yeah, and I, I, Marx also makes a case that it only comes from l labor, you know, that the, the, that the profits only come from labor. And this is something that will become important later on in the yeah, labor chapters. It's quite controversial, actually. Many Marxist economists don't think this anymore. But this is the, yeah, this is the big claim. That uh, even with you know rentier dynamics and you know other, other kinds of like stuff that you see in contemporary capitalism, that no, the realm of exchange really is this zero sum game that deals with what the realm of production does. That it, it it distributes what the realm of production makes, and it and to it me, can't make more. Yeah, this to me it sounds like a very real. It sounds like a very logical idea that that you know if you think about a society what do we do we we build stuff we do stuff for people you know we we do services and we build loads of stuff you know and then that's the, the, the like the wealth of the economy or whatever not the wealth we talked about earlier but like that's the value in the economy and everything else about who gets it or whatever else is like a secondary kind of a thing. And this is what Marx is trying to get across is that, you know, production is where it's at. Shareholders siphoning off money here or a landlord charging you for your rent uh, for no reason, only that he owns the house or something. Like that actually everything comes from production first. Yeah. Um, mm. There's even a, a neoclassical schools of exploitation that are, are, that just redefine exploitation as like an unfair exchange of any commodity, mm. you know, where this isn't even saying, oh, there's an unfair exchange of labor power. It's like, no, the point of selling labor power is to generate surplus value. That's, yeah, that's, that's the is. use, that's the use value of labor power of, ab of abstract labor power. That's, that's what it, that's what it does. That's the, why you buy that commodity. Like and it's it's weird, like because my my uh, grandfather, my my on my father's side, they pretty much lived in feudal times. <laughs> you know, they were during the War of Independence uh, in Ireland when they were fighting against the British. You know, the bell would ring on the on the on the guy's farm, and if you weren't down by the by the time you know five minutes within the bell ringing to do your labor on his land. You know, especially amongst the time when the war was going on, you were thought to be involved in the IRA and you would get shot. You know, and like my grandfather was 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 working on that stuff. You know, you knew fine well that you just had to do some labor for this guy. Your exploitation was right there in your face. You know, mm -hmm. the landlord got his work from you. You got a little plot of land to survive on. You know, the exploitation was right there in your face. And in 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 capitalism, it's it's kind of masked. Mm -hmm. it, it's 
uh, I, I just want to clarify one thing for people who might be uh, entirely new to Marxist value theory and coming at this for the first time. Uh, like a common thing that, that I thought as well, like, okay, this labor power thing doesn't really make sense. What if I, you know, what if I'm on hourly wages or whatever, and I only get paid whenever I work? What if we do that with a smartphone app so that the, you know, my employer can watch me work and, you know, I don't get paid when I go to the bathroom or whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one way to think about this is whenever you buy anything, uh, so think of a car, right? If you buy a car, you're not buying miles. You're not buying miles per hour or speed. You're buying a car that has the capacity to take you miles or whatever. You're not purchasing distance right. or anything that the that the that the car actually does. What you're buying is a car. Um, so that's that's one thing why why uh, why labor power is. Uh, just to help people make sense of the fact um, that it's always your labor power that you sell. Um, it's it's really, really kind of, uh, it would be hard to sell labor, even if it were possible. Um, uh, the, the other thing is that, just a side note, this is one of the, this just, I mean, this has to be true for Marx to make sense. So if, if Marx has to be consistent, he's saying that, the, the labor time socially necessary to reproduce a commodity is what determines its value. If that's true, then that has to be true of workers as well. So if you buy a, if you buy a, you know, um, the, the labor power of an engineer for a full work year, okay, what is the socially necessary labor time required to reproduce engineers? Like in, in general, okay, they, maybe they have to pay rent, they have to pay, gasoline they have to pay for their uh you know um uh student loans or whatever so there's a cost attached to reproducing engineers that's what you pay in wages um and uh well, what they produce is something, is something completely different sometimes though it'll be lower you know as yeah, in yeah, yeah sure you know it'll it'll actually drive, drive people into poverty and sometimes it'll be higher the working class is strong and they'll actually get more than they need to reproduce but it, you know you know, you cannot have it below the need, the means of reproduce reproduction for long. Exactly. You know, it has to. That's yeah. like a kind of a, a minimal level that you need to be able to reproduce the the labor force. Which is, you know, when we if you read capital, you get into like in the eighteen hundreds in Britain and the seventeen hundreds where they actually were paying them below the rate that was needed to maintain the workforce, and the it's workforce fine. was getting ill and diminished and run down and dying of. All manner of different ailments, like Walmart, right? Okay, you you, you pay the cashiers less than they need in order to survive, and what you get in exchange is you get um, you get food vouchers, yeah, uh, so that they can they can buy back the uh, things from from Walmart with. So yeah, yeah, that's 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 entirely true. But um, one important thing to just keep note, keep keep hold of is that, and this is something that Emmanuel kind of touched on, is that it's very tempting to think about this as like, oh, if only we could quantify this labor power, right? If only we could somehow rationalize, you know, what labor power is. No, no, no. It's not just that you can't do that because, oh, no, you know, things could be put to so many uses or something like that. It's that not doing that is desirable. It's important that there be a difference between what you pay for the worker 
and what the worker can do. So in mm -hmm. some sense, <laughs> you know, we shouldn't think of, you know, get, getting a, getting a, oh, if only we could, you know, this, I guess is getting into the Goethe program, money token stuff, right? Which we maybe don't want to get into. But the fact that, the fact that there's a dis difference between labor power and wages is not a feature, it's not a bug, it's a feature. It's something that keeps the system going. Yeah, this is the controversial part of Marxist value theory right here. That this is what threatens, this is what, you know, this is the scientific contribution in political economy that threatens the, the kind of humanist claims of capitalism. Yeah, and, and this is why, this is why econ economics shed labor theory of value, this concept of labor power, that immediately was, was shed, because it, it lays bare to everybody, I think, politically, what, you know, the implications of the capitalist system, you know, in a, in a devastating fashion. What do people think of that? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in how many disciplines can you say that, you know, the historical uh, left wing is trying to bring out an objective relation and the right wing is trying to tell you it's socially constructed? Oh, it's just, you know, people feel differently, man. I mean, like what, you know, in what other discipline is this like a. Uh, is that the lay of the land? And I mean, you know, econ economics and the left has deteriorated, don't get me wrong. But, you know, like it's... <laughs> That's a very good point. That is a really, that is a, a deep one. I think, uh, I think uh, the thing that Tom said actually about um, the exploitation was right there in your face. Uh, the, the kind of nebulousness of uh, the selling of labor power is kind of what... Um, the current state of capitalism, which is neoliberal economics basically is seeking to address is that you can keep the bare minimum of, of, um, of uh, what the worker needs to reproduce the labor power in the future. Um, but everything is done as kind of a, kind of a gesture of handouts or, or a handout of charitability. Um, and it feels, I think, I think that's like one of the most uh, interesting, uh, how do I say? It? I think that's, that's the thing that the charge that uh, it is in, unethical to do this is uh, getting more serious as time goes on because the exploitation is becoming less and less outright. And in the current state, it's... Uh, yeah, it goes more and more towards the dishonest uh, end of the spectrum to to make it seem like the the scraps that are given for for somebody needed to reproduce their labor power is uh, actually some kind of favor, but mm. it really is just a way. Um, it really is what is needed for the capitalist to uh, to maintain profit. Yeah, yeah, and. It's funny because we're talking about this now, but I remember being at Speaker's Corner in London about, <laughs> I don't know, eight or nine years ago before I ever read A Lick of Marx. And I was arguing with a Marxist guy who, who I had on the podcast, Heiko Koo. This is in my 
pre-Marxist days, and I was arguing the exact opposite of of this point. And I was arguing like uh, this idea of a mutually beneficial contract, you know, where you both do well out of it. Yeah. You know, which is and that's like the the actual the power of that argument. We're so inculcated with it, you know, like this idea of labor power to me is amazingly powerful. I I just if it can, you know, it really breaks through that idea of this mutually beneficial contract, which is drilled into our heads from day one. Yeah. And and, and the, the thing is, like, it is mutually beneficial. Like, you don't starve. But we don't talk about why you, why it is you don't starve. So, like, um, I, I, I think Aiden's point was, was, was great in that, like, just look at how uh, capital uh, um, theorizes about itself. Like, w w what is it that they say? Well, they say we are the job creators, right? We we create jobs, thus saving people from starvation. Um, but what Marx sort of lays bare is the fact that okay, how is it that you create jobs exactly? Is it um, is it true that with you know without you there would be no uh, no machinery. There would be no windmills, uh, you know, churning out, um, churning out flour. Uh, no one would bake. No one would grow food. No one would do stuff. Right? Um, is is that the way you 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 create jobs? Like the the only way you could create jobs is if it were true that if we didn't have capitalists, no one would build stuff. Um, but you know, and when you put the capitalists to the core to, on the spot, they'll say, "Well, no, of course not." I mean, if if we just packed up a left, people would do this sort of thing anyway. Well, what is it exactly that you bring to the table then? Um, what is it? And, would you say you do here? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What exactly are you doing here? Um, because if if that's not true, then what the hell do we need you guys for, right? Um, yeah. And uh, it, it, it sort of from this argument that, it, that one can deduce, which Marx also does, that the, the core feature of this is just private property. The, 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 the core feature is they stop us from entering the, the, the windmills and the factories and, and, and things that society needs to reproduce itself on our own. Mm -hmm. um, they what's really going on is a monopoly relation they're they're they own yeah. the means of production and uh therefore since they own the means of production that's the necessary condition for the rest of us to starve if we don't produce uh surplus value for them okay yeah. that's the only like, way we can get this sort of system and it stems from this exact thing about about labor power it's 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 a really powerful and elegant argument that really you know uh keeps you awake at night <laughs> it, it's really good i think as well the the way he has it's called labor power because yeah. there it just dis, it displays the power dynamic like you know if if i'm some like scuzzy guy and i go down and i find uh, uh, a prostitute on the street corner who's a drug addict and i ask her like 10 quid to sleep with me or something you know you can make the case that that's mutually beneficial to both people you know, she'll get money for her drugs and I'll get my rocks off, right? Yes. But it, it doesn't just talk about obviously it's a scummy thing to do, but it's the it's the it's a there's a power dynamic there. 
Yeah. And also, like, the like, you know, the power dynamic is hidden in in capitalism, and I think this this concept really lays it bare. Like, you know, if you think about the, what was the power dynamic, or what you know, what was your mutually um, beneficial contract under feudalism? It was like, if you don't do it, I'll kick your head in. You know, that was it. I'll send a knight down there, and he'll burn your house down, and he'll kill your daughter or something. And you go. Oh well, wow, he's a job creator. <laughs> you know, it like it, the dynamic is so plain. But yeah. at the end of it is here. He just also just before we finish, he talks about um uh, the surplus rate or uh, the sur the rate of surplus value or the rate of exploitation. And this is where he, he takes uh, the rate the ratio of the surplus value to the variable capital. So this is the idea of like what is what this kind of ties into like um how much you're being exploited you know yes. so like if you're being paid uh half of the value that you create so the same amount is surplus as the same amount as wages then it's basically a hundred percent rate exploitation um if you're being paid a quarter of it it'll be 300 percent exploitation and if you're paid three quarters of it it'll be 33 percent exploitation it's just that's just uh yeah, a simple one that we're going to meet in the future. Um, but it's a way of calculating the how much you're being screwed, essentially. Cool. On that, on that note, um, there's another argument that you hear a lot um, in in favor of, well, in favor of the capitalist mode of production, which is basically capitalists will argue that we are the ones who generate wealth, and from that wealth <laughs> is where you make your live that's where you the pool that you draw from in order to eat and to live your life out mm. and um you hear this you hear this argument really often like pretty much all the time but it is to me it is uh almost i think it's an outright lie <laughs> in that no the the amount of labor that you have like in, within that portion of your labor power that you that you paid for the amount to sustain um, to 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 produce the number of uh, plumbuses that uh, that you were that your wage allows you um, and that is what is needed in order to live. Uh, yeah, I think that pretty much goes to show right away that. Uh, that really the the arguments that uh, the capitalists are the one who generate the wealth from which the rest of society thrives is well it's utter it's utter crap um yeah yeah and that's that's not where that's not where wealth which would you know supposedly in the uh, the capitalist argument uh serve to increase the quality of life to make the quality of life better for humanity um that is the supposed pool of wealth from which that quality would come from well it it doesn't work yeah so they're lying about that and they subject humanity to what was called universal prostitution and i think this phrase and this tradition in marxism is like very consistent with the dignity of sex workers because honestly sex workers have been some of the only people i heard in normie life that would articulate this 
that yeah. like yeah that, yes. um oh you think you're so much better than me but you rent your body too yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there you go they're damn right yeah yeah and um okay is there anything that we have discussed today that people have any more further thoughts or think we've missed anything before we before we finish up I don't think I've ever done anything more thoroughly and <laughs> examined here. Not that I've been, you know, particularly uh, 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 analytically sharp on every point, but just that I'm. I feel like I understand this way better than I did six years ago, and I feel like I'm doing that earlier part of myself justice by digging in like this with y'all. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Very good. Okay, well, thanks everybody for coming on and I'm going to just hit the stop broadcast button on and then we can figure out when we're going to do the next one after we go out. I just want to say a shout out to everybody in the chat. Who do we have in the chat? Yay. We have, yes. uh, God, it's really, it's really kicking off in the chat there now. Wow. We've had uh, Data Lore, Della Terra. Um, Data Lore, what's up? Swamp Side. A Russian name that I, I don't know how to pronounce it because it's in... in Do we have, in, like, um, a sign for Swampside? Like, no, I just recognized... No. I recognized Datalore from um, just participating... I don't know, Swampside comments and, and stuff. Right. But, but we should have, like, a, you know, there's, Swampside kind of... There's the east side, the west side. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only uh, real gang, the universal gang, is Swampside. Sure. Yeah, socially, the socially necessary gang. The we have uh, we also have Cockter. I I don't know how to pronounce your name. I really have butchered that one. Sorry about that. Um, who else do we have? We've got um, we've got libertarian Lennis Rance. Let's not forget about him Woo! or her. Seriously, if yeah. they want to come on, I mean, like this is this is your invitation. That was a real absolutely great yeah, contribution. contribution. Yeah, yeah. We also have Old Man Damp. It's here for old man damp. And who else do we have? There, he's having right. some kind of full-on discussion uh, on fight with somebody who's called LDSKJFHSLKJDHFSFLKHF. I think he might have wrote that name in haste. <laughs> that um, might be Welsh, though. <laughs> it might be Welsh. No, Cornish. Uh, there's no, if it was if it was Welsh, there would be a lot of Y's in there. Let's be realistic here. Um, <laughs> And that's that's everybody and another person called a a a a a a a a a so what are they saying though what what are they what are they what are they talking about um walmart and some of them are saying hello stuff like that and a says here i'm 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 here to dunk on the libs so we must have got some right wingers in here I don't know, a right winger or a commie. Who knows? Oh, wow. Is it a right winger? I mean, horseshoe, horseshoe. You could be a leftist. You could be a leftist dunking on the libs. I mean, isn't that's that what the, I mean? Yeah, I'm going for your horseshoe theory again. Horseshoe oh, all night, baby, all night. Own those libs. Yeah. <laughs> right, everybody. Thanks oh. very much for uh, bearing with us. Uh, let's. Uh, we should have a group goodbye. Will we do a group goodbye? Yes. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye, listeners. Bye. 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 Bye.